before Brian comes up this morning to start uh, our new series in Revelation, I ask my friend Olivia here to give us uh, the scripture that we'll be focusing on today. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It is incredible to be back in the sanctuary with people, uh, be able to worship together. We've been online um, gathering, and it's, it's been a journey and God has been so very present all along the journey. And what a joy to be able to celebrate uh, God's presence among us today. Starting a new sermon series on the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And I spent a lot of time praying about what we should study through this fall and uh, in this season. And, you know, six or seven years ago, I think, maybe eight, we, we studied the seven letters to seven churches. And I really thought this would just be perfect as we come back together. Revelation, written by John on the island of Patmos, um, Revelation 1 4 says the letter is addressed to seven churches, it says, in Asia. And, and Asia isn't what we think of as Asia. Uh, that's really important. It's the western section of the Roman province of Asia, which uh, is Asia Minor. Uh, and chapter 2 through 3 names these seven churches. Uh, they're all addressed individually in chapters 2 through 3 of Revelation. And, and their churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, these aren't churches like we imagine, you know, our, our Hillspring Church at 1153 Gage Boulevard in Richland, Washington. Now, this was somewhere between 92 and 96 A.D. They didn't have church buildings back then. You know, originally, a church was a small group of people, and, and they would gather together pretty much in houses when John says seven churches, he means all of the communities, all these house churches that meet in these seven regions in Asia Minor. Now for us, the key is going to be listening to the individual message that Christ has for each of these churches. There's going to be a couple exceptions, but pretty much every single church out of these seven, they will receive a commendation and a condemnation. What do I mean? Well, Christ has 
a commendation for each church and, and a condemnation for each church. And we're going to see a couple times that changes. But, but in general, there's something they're doing really well at, but there's something that's an issue in that church. Remember, the full title of Revelation is the Revelation to John. Revelation comes from Christ through John. Now, each of these seven messages, they're directed to these seven churches from Christ through John is the point. And so there's a formula. It's found in every one of these seven letters. And each letter, they'll start with a different, um, different title for Christ. And, and then there's going to come that condemnation and com- commendation. Next, we'll have an encouragement, a word of encouragement and, or an admonition. And then there's a promise for the church. And if you're following our daily study guide, I really hope that you're able to, to keep track of those things. You know, if this was a Bible study, we would really talk a lot about that formula. It just repeats over and over seven times. But for a sermon series, we're going to leave some of that behind. And we're going to focus on the commendation and the condemnation for each church. Because there's a letter of truth in there for us today. We're going to come back to that in a second, but what what do we know about Ephesus? The first of these seven letters is written to the church at Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus? Who were they? And why should we care today? Well, the church at Ephesus, one of the most important communities in the early church. It's in modern-day Turkey at this point. Uh, Back in the day, though, Ephesus was a major trade city. It's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire back at the time this was written. About a quarter of a million people lived there. The Apostle Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He lived there for three years. He knew the people very well. Paul, he wrote about half of the New Testament, including a letter written specifically to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians. So there's really two letters to the church of Ephesus in the New Testament. There's the the letter that Paul wrote, and then there's the one that we're talking about today in Revelation chapter 2. There's some very important information about Ephesus in the Acts of the Apostles as well. And Acts tells us Paul didn't start the church at Ephesus, uh, but he spent a lot of time there. He knew the first generation of the Ephesian church very well. Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the temple of the goddess Diana. Uh, And and it was huge. It was more than 100,000 square feet. That's twice the size of a football field today. The temple had 100 columns. Each were 55 feet high. And and each column was just a, a work of art. Beautiful sculpture. And people would come from everywhere to see the temple. It was just spectacular. And and you know that something as large as that is going to closely be intertwined to the local economy, right? The temple brought in tourists. People came just to see the Temple of Diana. It it was huge. And I'm sure you're ahead of me on this, but, but what do tourists need when they go to visit a famous spot. They need souvenirs, right? Making and selling souvenirs was a big deal in Ephesus. It was a really big deal. They made souvenirs for the visitors so they could purchase when they came 
to visit Ephesus. You know, my parents got, went to the Temple of Diana, and all they got me was this lousy T-shirt. But Acts says that the, the souvenirs, they were, they, were, they were silver candle holders was one of the main things, and they were made by silversmiths. But that wasn't all. So Acts tells us that Paul went to Ephesus, and he started preaching, and, and people started converting to Christianity, and they burned the symbols of their previous religion. Magicians would burn their magic books and their scrolls, and Acts says 50,000 silver coins worth of souvenirs and, and just various uh, religious paraphernalia to these gods were burned after people converted to Christianity. 50,000 silver pieces. It was a very symbolic act. They were, they were renouncing their previous faith, their previous religion, as they were affirming their faith in Christ. That got the attention of the priests in the temple. Their turf was being threatened. And the bigger issue became the effect the Christians had on the tourist industry in Ephesus. So when the tourists were converting to Christianity, they stopped buying souvenirs. Caused a serious image problem for the early church at Ephesus. And see, the local silversmiths, the, the guild, they started a riot because they were concerned about losing more revenue as the Christians continued to pull away their customers and convert them to Christianity. Early church did some great PR work, and they smoothed things out. But the deal is the impression was, was the Christians in Ephesus were dangerous to the city's economy. The seed was planted. The goal that these Christians had was to convert the followers of other gods. And these people realized if they were successful, the converts would not buy idols. They would not buy candle holders, which would mean their revenue would go down. No more souvenirs being sold. The Chamber of Commerce, the local city government, they frown on that type of thing. So Acts 20 records a warning that Paul gives when he leaves Ephesus. He says in Acts 20, 29-31, I know that after I've gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some even from your own group will come and distort the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to warn everyone with tears. Now, why do I go into that background on Ephesus? Because that's the story of the first season of the church in Ephesus, the first generation of the Christians in Ephesus. When we get to this letter written in Revelation, it's the next generation. It's written to the generation after that. By then, the Christians had found a way to exist in harmony with the local businesses. They existed in harmony with the temple leadership, the local government. And what that really means is the Christians in Ephesus, they lost their passion. They were no longer a threat to the establishment. 
They were no longer a danger to the local economy. Conversions were down. I mean, they probably still talked about the day that Paul came and converted all those people. But that was grandpa's story. It wasn't theirs. It was their history. So when Revelation was written, the Ephesians in their second generation, and it's 40 years later, when these words were written to the Ephesians from chapter 2 of Revelation, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I know you can't tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you're enduring patiently, bearing up for the sake of my name. You've not grown weary. That's the commendation. That's what they're doing well, right? Endurance, patience. They haven't grown weary. It sounds like, you know, Paul's fear happened. People came after he left, and they tried to pull them apart, and they kept the faith, and they, and they, they found the false teachers, and, and, and they lasted through that storm. But listen to the condemnation in chapter 2, verse 4. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. I bet they never threatened the silversmiths again after Paul left. I bet they didn't have another public bonfire, religious goods being burned. They made a really good start of it, but they lost their passion. They lost the edge that they had at first. Remember hearing somebody say, you know, once a band, a uh, music band, once they, they come out with a great first album, but their second album's never quite as good as the first one. And, and the reason is because the band members are too busy, you know, picking out the carpet for their new houses as they're writing their second song, their second album. Because they lost their edge, you know, they, lo- they just got comfortable. They lost the love they had at first. I mean, that's the story of Rocky 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6 to 7 to 8. To, you know. It's so easy to get complacent, to just kind of slip a little bit at a time. And pretty soon you're so far from where you started, and then you just kind of wake up one day and you say, how did I get here? I remember reading one time, if, if a pilot leaves Hawaii and they're headed to Seattle and, and if their flight path is off like just one degree or something like that, they end up in Southern California, little by little. How's your journey with Christ going? Do you still have the love? Do you still have the zeal? the passion that you had at first? That's a great question for us to answer six months into COVID-19. Because what we really need to talk about is the church at Ephesus today in 2020. 
If you go to Ephesus right now, the place where Paul spent three years of his life in ministry, he, he wrote the Ephesians, this beautiful letter. I mean, we still study it today. I read it earlier this year. Ephesus was one of the most important churches in the early church. And Christianity is just non-existent in that city today. There's no active Christian church there today. Not one. And the church just died. They didn't listen to Christ's words. They didn't return to the love they had at first. They had a chance, but their lampstand was blown out. The story of the church of Ephesus is a tragedy, and we don't want to repeat that tragedy. I think about where we are as a church right now. We haven't come together in six months. We spent the first month or two, you know, just, just trying to go digital. And, you know, we all, we tried to learn new ways to communicate and, you know, creating new systems for all of us to connect. And we had online worship. We had Zoom meetings. We'd have, you know, workshops on uh, how to image in, in uh, you know, taking videography and all this stuff. And, you know, we, we learned new software. We learned new platforms, how to record video. You know, we, we, we tried to find ways for you to get to know us as well. That's half, more than half the reason we went to our homes is we just wanted to find ways that we could connect on a deeper level. And we've had new people join us very regularly, and some in other parts of the nation, but, you know, people across the globe. Every once in a while, our online worship would get shared in, like, India, and we'd have, like, thousands of people watch our, our online worship in India. It happened more than once. It was kind of crazy. And not just in India, but all over the United States. You know, people from my past, churches that I was at before, you know, they started joining us week after week, and same with the other staff. And people who've moved away from the Tri-Cities, they were able to join us once more. And you know, I'm so proud of the staff. And so thankful for the ways that our church has, has stayed together throughout the season and it was hard. I mean, you know, we, we had to learn a lot of stuff really quickly. But there's so much that we've missed. We tried to be interactive, but the reality is, you know, online is largely one way, right? And we miss the interaction, and we, we, we just miss the community. And I think in September 2020, we need to hear the words, Christ's admonition to the church at Ephesus. Remember from what you've fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. Remember, the, the word repent, it just simply means to change your path, right? It, it, it comes from the Hebrew ver verb shuv. We talked about that before. That's the verb to turn. You, you, you stop where we're going and you turn toward God. There's a, a little bit of a change in this passage. I think it's really interesting, and it's easy to miss, but I think it's a big deal. What Christ says here, it moves from a, a diagnosis of the problem, that they abandoned the love they had at first, to a prescription Christ gives. 
that's the solution to the problem. And he says, do the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. The Ephesians abandoned the love they had at first. And they were told to get back. And the way to get back was to do the works that they did at first. Jesus says, do something. Action. You know, historically, it took years for the church at Ephesus to die. But I have the feeling they were like the walking dead for a very long time. Just wandering, going through the motions. But they weren't doing the actions. They were living off the memories of, you know, that that time the silversmiths all converted when they were threatening the establishment and, you know, they were remembering the big bonfire that one day, but they stopped doing anything. They just relived their history over and over and over and over. You got to do something. When you stop doing you lose the love you had at first. We haven't met for worship together like this for quite some time. And I'm thinking a lot of us are probably backing off on our spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, prayer, fasting, small groups. We haven't had communion together for months. This weekend is our annual fall kickoff. It's the time that we all come back together and we ramp up things after summer. And we need that ramp more than now than ever today. We have to find ways to continue our discipleship, to learn to to, to work in the midst of COVID. It's a reality. It's here. We can't just stop our lives We have to be smart, but we have to do action. We're going to find new ways to be a worshiping community in in the weeks and months to come. New ways that we can gather as appropriate to our level of health risk. And that means for some of us, we need to stay online, but we need to get back into it. For some, that's really going to be your only option. You're at higher risk and, and... We have options. We're going to continue providing online worship, continue to provide online groups, uh, ways that you can connect. If that's where you're at, you need to use that. The early church met in small groups in their homes, right? I mean, we can do that. We're going to resource every one of our areas of ministry to include more and more elements of worship. Because here's the deal. Reggie McNeil, who's our consultant we work with, we've worked with him for quite some time. And Reggie told me a couple months ago, about a month ago, I guess now, across the country, about 20% of people are willing to go back to worship when they can. 20% of active congregation is ready to go back. I just don't think that's acceptable. Now, we can have 50 people meet indoors, and we can have 100 people meet outdoors, 
But we can help all of our people, all of our groups, our men's, our women's, our small groups, our youth, our young adults. You know, we, we can have smaller worshiping communities. Worship isn't just getting together in a big room and singing words that are on the wall. That's a very, very recent phenomenon in church history. Yeah, I believe we can hit 75, 80% or higher our church returning to worship. It's not going to look like it did for a while. And in the midst of this, though, I believe we're going to grow deeper and deeper as we look back at our roots and we learn about worship from the ancestors of our faith, how they worship for the first 400 years of Christianity. We're going to come back together in a big room eventually, absolutely. But right now, we just can't stop worshiping. The rocks will cry out. God is incredibly present right now in the midst of this season. And the spiritual need in our world has never been greater. You know, one of the greatest churches of the early church lost the love they had at first. And today that church is completely gone. That's not us. Don't misunderstand me. I've been amazed how interactive our church has been. And, you know, once more you came together just uh, about two weeks ago and, and raised $40,000 in one week to offer for East Kennewick families who are really desperately in need and as well as our friends down in Honduras. Just so proud of our church. And we can do even greater things because Christ is with us. Christ is in us. I think we'll look back at this time and we will see this is a season our church thrived. It's a time that our church grew in its ability and its capacity to, to live, love, and grow as disciples of Jesus. But we got to get our lives back. I'm really excited about the fall. You know, we, we have so many opportunities as we enter into fall. You, you're going to have to say yes, though. We'll set the stage. We're going to have classes, groups, meetings, opportunities for fellowship, opportunities for worship. But you have to say yes. We can't do it for you. Are you going to join us? We pray with me. Lord, in the midst of this season, we ask your Holy Spirit to descend upon our church. Help us to remember and help us to regain the love, the zeal for you that we have at first. Help our church to be a beacon of passion and hope, a beacon of people filled with your Spirit who are living their lives in love of Jesus. And through our actions, your love might be realized, and in the midst of so much need, hope might find a resurrection. In your son's name we pray, amen.